can now, ladies and gentlemen, we are boarding flight 44 and some service to Paris or leave through door 3X. See you. I'm doing something I love to do, watching a 20-year-old documentary from ESPN. American soccer players, they're in their matching navy blue blazers and they're boarding a plane at JFK Airport. 14 hours later, thanks to the miracle of air travel, they'll arrive at their destination, the middle of nowhere. We went from New York, where you walk out of the street and there's a million things going on, to uh, here, I guess, in Lyon, where I think if the geese cross the street, it's happening. It's June 5th, 1998 and the 22 men representing the United States into World Cup action, they finally arrived in France. They're jet-lagged, disoriented. They have little sense of where they're going to spend their final weeks of training. As it turns out, they'll be living in seclusion at an elegant chateau surrounded by 130 acres of vineyards, but not much else. Us? Bored? Nah. There's usually a card game or two going on at the time. There's some, some darts, but it's usually pretty friendly. Watching this ESPN documentary now about the American soccer players back then, first thing that jumps out, they all seem so bloody young to me, like little boys on their first day at a youth soccer camp. Eric Wijnaldum's floating around, fretting to everyone about an injured knee. Well, I have a week left to feel 100%. I still need, I still need time couple more days. Some look a little dazed, a little terrified even. Others, though, are wide-eyed, full of hope, just bursting to get out there and give it their all. For me, it's, it's been so special to fight to get back here because I know how much it would mean to me to be on the field that day. Tab Ramos and his teammates did have plenty of time to contemplate that kind of thing. Inside the walls of a gated chateau under heavy security, all that World Cup excitement they craved in Paris. That was four hours away. Another world. The closest thing to nightlife for them was the nearest village. Grab a bicycle. Start pedalling. All right, boys. Good session today. Good work. And of course, their coach, Steve Sampson. Steve, who at one time couldn't imagine even being given the interim job and who is now about to lead the team out onto the field of play at a bloody World Cup. Steve, who thought he'd found the perfect place to reunite a fractured team before they all headed into battle. We wanted this to be ridiculously special for the players. And it cost the Federation a lot more money than they anticipated, but we were staying at the Chateau d'Epizé in one of the finest hotels in the world. We must have visited um, 20 different installations. And so we, we did an inspection tour of hotels at, at each one of the three sites. And we had a five-star chef preparing meals for these players. We had a magnificent training ground. France, Brazil, and England all stayed there. And I felt it was good enough for our national team. Oh, Steve.
This is American Fiasco, the show about the effect that 130 acres of Beaujolais vineyards had on one single US national team. I'm Roger Bennett. I remember going, man, we're here to be in a World Cup and we're staying on a, at a chateau. And I remember I had a glass of wine, uh, uh, two glasses of wine, me and my roomie, Jeff Agus. Agus. This is Frankie Hayduck, the Californian surfer turned US international wingback. It wasn't long after the players settled into their new chateau digs that many of Frankie's teammates began to wish they were somewhere else. I remember it being very peaceful. I had my guitar, um, but I also remember guys grumbling about, you know, certain stuff. Certain stuff. You know, my approach was, my approach was headphones, Bob Marley. Don't worry. So it was just, when it would pop off, you'd just be like, headphones on. Headphones on. Like, I mean, whenever that would happen, I'd look out the window, and in my mind, I was in Jamaica. <laughs> really? Well... If Frankie Hayduck was living his best life in rural France, it seems some of his teammates... And they were out, you know, in the, uh, in kind of the main area because there was ducks and geese and, you know, all kinds of animals, you know, farm animals and everything around and roosters. I remember it was very, you know, at five in the morning, there was a lot of noise. And, but this particular night I came out and there's, you know, Kobe and Ernie talking to the ducks. They're feeding the ducks. They're naming the ducks. You know, it's almost like they were going batty, you know. This is Jim Frostlid, the press officer, recalling the night that he spotted Kobe Jones and Ernie Stewart, two veteran midfielders, and he knew something was amiss behind the chateau's gilded walls. When you were looking at two elite footballers, one who played in the Dutch league, another who played in the English league, yeah, talking to ducks, yeah, was that a sign to you? Yeah, we, we were all going nuts. Forward Brian McBride, he polished off most of the New Testament, the first and only time he's read it from cover to cover. Midfielder Brian Maisonerve told a reporter what he was reading, Les Pages, the Yellow Pages. I guess, if you take a bunch of male athletes, lock them up inside the grounds of a palace for about two weeks, it's natural they'll get a little jittery. I'm sure there's somewhere in this world a wonderful... Uh, you know, psychiatric hospital, but that's what it felt like. I mean, if it looked great from the outside, it was Hotel California, man. We were, we were inside those walls trying to figure out how we could just get through the next day. But then again, don't you think you could take another bunch of elite male athletes, lock them up inside the grounds of a palace for two weeks, and tell them they have just that amount of time to prepare themselves, both mentally and physically, for an elite tournament on the global stage that only happens once every four years, a tournament that will define them and expect them to, you know, buckle down. The Germans and the Italians and the English and the French, and we could go on, were, were world-class professionals, not to insult the American teams, but they're a completely different level of expectations, of training. Jeremy Schapp. A reporter assigned to cover the U.S. national team for ESPN. He was with the players from the moment they landed in France, day in, day out. Yes, we spent a lot of time at the lovely Chateau de Pizet. For us, you know, meaning the ESPN crew, 
it was idyllic. We were staying in Lyon, which is one of the great underrated cities in Western Europe. <laughs> the cuisine is outstanding. And uh, every day we take like a half hour drive up to Saint-Jean-Dardier, this beautiful chateau. You know, we would be delivered interviews with, with the big players on the team. I remember playing pool with the third string goalkeeper, Jurgen Sommer, one day. And um, they made a, a very nice club sandwich. And you don't know how good mayonnaise can be, Roger, until you've had homemade mayonnaise in a 15th century French chateau. Okay, Shaf, I got it. The mayo, it was amazing. But let's get back to the subject at hand. What the American players had in mind for those crucial final training days versus how other elite teams operated, the squads from Europe and South America, because the guys on those teams, you know, their, their whole lives were rock and roll. They're superstars. You know, their whole life from the beginning of the season through the end of the season is living it up and, you know, going to Mallorca and that kind of stuff. Whereas the Americans had never experienced, you know, the great things that are available as a star of the World Cup. So, so you know, these are guys who are playing in... Uh, you know, the fledgling MLS in front of crowds of, you know, 35 or 40 uh, ardent supporters who might have gotten free tickets. And so we're going to the World Cup in France. Naturally, they would want to experience the atmosphere, the enthusiasm, and they were prevented from doing so because Saint-Jean-Dardier is in the middle of nowhere. It's lovely. The wine is very nice. It's a it's a Beaujolais uh, that they sell. And, uh, you know, young wine is, is nice. So the big players, the big teams, their whole lives were the big dance. And this was, in the Americans' mind, their three weeks at the big right, dance. Right, right. Look, mostly these were guys who, um, who were expecting something out of the World Cup akin to what Olympic athletes get out of the Olympic Village. Let's get this straight. Your average American soccer player, he has to toil away in relative obscurity. But you're European or you're South American, they're used to the limelight. And when that World Cup rolls around, they know it's time to get serious. Argentina, for example, they banish the press and then hold up in the town of Les Trois in the Loire Valley. The Americans, they were similarly isolated. Only difference being, they wanted out. I mean, the only thing that we could watch on our TV in the room was soccer because everything else was in French. When you turn on the damn TV and you see Brazil out by the water, you see Italy. They're not isolated up in the mountains. They were in a nice hotel overlooking water. You start looking at all the teams and you're like, we're isolated up in a mountain in a vineyard where I have to ride a bike into town 10 minutes just to get out and go do something. We're like, why are we being isolated? Why are we being secluded? Why are we being put by ourselves out here? Our players are different than other players around the world. They're, they happen to be very entitled. U.S. Soccer Federation's Hank Steinbrecher. He's the guy who'd approved the budget for the bloody chateau to begin with. Well, how do you manage an entitled player? They, they go out when they're a youth player and their mom in the Cadillac drives them to training or the Mercedes wagon drives them to training. They have a $350 pair of boots. They've got great shin guards. They've got a, a Nike top-of-the-line ball. Compared to if you... Compared to an El Salvador Rio. guy who's walking to the pitch in bare feet for three miles because he doesn't want to wear his boots out. 
for Steve Sampson, who at this point should have known his team pretty well. Their simmering discontent came as a shock. One of the players complained there was no pizza delivery. Yeah, can you believe that? There's no pizza delivery. You know, quite frankly, you know, we're there to play football. We're there to do a job. Uh, I think Steve took the approach of we want, you know, concentration. We want that type of, that insulation that, and isolation that at times can be good. Alexi Lellis, self-admittedly the biggest grump of the bunch. But for the group that he had, it was, that was already pretty fractured and, and, and was problematic. Probably, yeah, I was, I was probably an asshole. I was probably a, uh, I was probably a, a malcontent and I probably was giving people the evil eye and doing all the things that a child does. And I take, I own it. I take full responsibility for it. I was, I was not happy. Neither was Eric Winelda. And Eric had shaved his head and he was way high and tight and he had this deathly stare of just complete anger. Rob Stone, then a young ESPN reporter, was covering the team along with Jeremy Shapp. He had lost his mind. Like He might have had a lobotomy back there. I, I was legitimately afraid of him with his stare and his haircut and he was angry as hell. Well, one of the players I interviewed said it, it, within 24 hours it had turned into a scene from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. <laughs> it was pretty dark. Striker, Brian McBride. Yeah, it, it turned into, you know, what do we do in our free time? We uh, <laughs> had VHS uh, tapes. There was a um, poker game that got huge and really was probably the main attraction of, of being at the Chateau. Oh, the poker game. So many of the players I spoke with mentioned the poker game. The one that went on for nights at a time, that nearly bankrupted some of the guys. True. At one point, I lost uh, a couple thousand to Precky, and I had to buy him a suit. That was my way out of that. Eric Winelda. I think the suit was about maybe eight hundred dollars less than what I owed him, but he, uh, thank God, he he he, he let that let me slide on that one. But it, and those games got out of control, and they, they shouldn't have. They were they were just you know you know dollar games, and then they, all of a sudden, you know, you had a couple of guys with a big wallet, and then the next thing you know, it got out of control. I heard the story of the Precky was just walking around with a sock stuffed with cash. True, and most of mine. Press officer Jim Frostlid, he was living at the chateau too. Well, I you know I remember card games. You know I remember, you know massive massive pots you know, money in the, in the, in the middle of the table. You know, I remember the guy saying, Hey, you know, Frosty, do you want to get in on this? And I looked at the pot and I go, it's about half my salary. I go, I can't, I can't play with you guys, you know? And, and there were players that won a lot of money and there were players that lost a lot of money. And I don't care what you say that affects a team. Nerves were fraying at the chateau. Money was being lost. Grievances publicly aired. But through it all, our hero, the coach, he persevered. 
how did Steve Sampson carry himself? Very um, powerful, in charge, emperor-esque. ESPN reporter Rob Stone. The way he spoke, it was always kind of these, these pauses in his sentences. Guys, today we're going to give it our all. We're, we're going to go with six in the midfield. Six in net. We're very strong. You know, he was scribbling stuff all over and arrows are going here and this. And then you flip another page and even for me, I'm like, this is great. This access is awesome. I'm trying to scribble stuff down, but it's none of it's really registering fully with me. Boy, I sure hope it is with the guys, <laughs> you know? And in that period, was it just a lack of respect for Steve manifesting itself? You know, I, it built. It's Jim Frostlet again. Yeah, it's probably built. But, you know, there again, keep in mind, there was optimism. It wasn't, it wasn't really a super negative, you know, people were going nuts, but we were still optimistic that we were going to perform. And hey, they had perpetual optimist Frankie Hajduk to keep their spirits buoyed. If they cared to keep them buoyed, that is. I was like, this place is cool, it's peaceful, I got my guitar, I can concentrate on soccer, I can, the food was good. Um, like I said, I wasn't there for a vacation. You know, we're, we're there to freaking try to win a World Cup and work. This is work. It's not play. There were, there, my dad taught me my life, life lesson. That was it. It was an easy one. Keep your head down, shut your mouth, and work hard. And so, June 13th, 1998, two days before their first World Cup game, the U.S. team took a bullet train headed back to Paris. Jim Frostlid kept a detailed journal of activities. The train arrived at 4.09pm, dinner was at 7 sharp, and was followed by a short city tour. The next day, June 14th, during final preparations, Froslid noted that Steve gave 15 minutes to his players to quote, work on their own. Steve actually believed players could find their own internal motivation if they walked around the field in silence. And that night, the night before the Germany game, the single biggest match of many of his players' lives, Steve gathered his squad around for one final huddle. I think that there was... Alexi Lalas. A... Uh, well, I mean, from my perspective, there was a fatalistic type of, uh, of mood. Steve Sampson took you outside, made you all hold hands in the circle. What did you feel in that moment? Honestly. Honestly? I was like, okay, we're doing a team bonding thing. <laughs> you know, we had never prayed before. Yeah, and, and a lot of that was because I felt that our chemistry uh, was an issue. And I felt that I needed to do everything possible to bring this team together and, and to unify them you know, with a, with a common goal of, of, of making a statement, with a common goal of, of understanding there's going to be millions of people across the world watching us. And everyone was like, this is a little creepy. But Steve was just getting started. After the prayer, he gave a toast. He popped a bottle of champagne. And then, as his pièce de résistance, played a video of highlights of the team's past few years together. And... You know, the, the, the video, it was a phenomenal video. I mean, it would, it would move a mountain. It was really a cool video. It was a highlight video of all the players 
Jim Frostlid. And the guy that made it was a really good friend of Steve's, okay? And he did it really with the mindset that, okay, I'm going to capture every player. I'm going to make sure we got a great highlight of every player. And I'm also going to make sure we got a couple of highlights of Steve, okay? And there were a couple of these where he he's like shaking his fists and celebrating a goal. And you could just feel it was like air coming out of a balloon in the room, you know? It just wasn't, we didn't need to see that. You know, it's, this is about the players. And Steve, you know, it's not like he went and edited it, but it was a, it was a nice piece. It was a nice piece. It just didn't need clips of him. It really didn't. And with that, it was done. The road to the World Cup, over. The team, they'd arrived at their destination, the tournament that had filled their dreams since they were kids. Each man had devoted his professional and personal life to this moment. They'd all made enormous sacrifices to be here, beaten out every other American to make the squad, then competed against each other to lock down the starting roles, desperately trying to impress their coach, even when they didn't understand what he wanted from them. They'd lost their captain, occasionally felt they were losing their minds, but now kickoff was just a night's sleep away, and the whole world would be watching them. We're anxious to, uh, to experience this. I think the players are, uh, I don't think anything is going to uh, distract them from what uh, their focus is, and that's to, uh, to do well against Germany on Monday night. The next morning, the team departed for Parc de Prince Stadium. Bus ride here was expedited by a five-vehicle police escort, wrote a giddy Jim Froslid in his diary which parted the bumper-to-bumper traffic like a hot knife through butter. This, he continued, will be one of the most monumental days of my life. American Fiasco is a production of WNYC Studios. Our team includes Joel Meyer, Emily Botine, Paula Schumann, Derek John, Starley Kine, Keegan Zemma, Ernie Intradat, Eliza Lambert, Jameson York, Daniel Guimet, Matt Boynton, Jonathan Williamson, Brad Feldman, B. Aldrich, Jeremy Bloom, Isaac Jones, and Sarah Sandbach. Joe Plourd is our technical director. Hannes Brown composed our original music. Our theme music is by Big Red Machine, the collaboration between Aaron Desner of The National and Justin Vernon of Bon Iver. This episode included audio from ESPN. For more about this story, including a timeline and more, go to fiascopodcast.com. Hey, it's Rog. And I know you're moving on to the next big episode. But before you do, please take a moment, one moment, and leave us a review on iTunes. Leave us some stars. Five is very, very nice. What it does, that tiny minute that you take out of your life, it helps other people find out about American Fiasco, find out about football, find out about dark human stories, which is a good thing, right? We all agree. Godspeed.